we're, uh, uh, get your Bibles out. We're in the book of Matthew. We're going over um, the gospel according to Matthew. And this is the theme that we're looking at is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom. Jesus is the king. When we started the series, we learned uh, in the very beginning with the birth of Jesus that he is the Messiah. He is he is the he is Matthew's audience is to a Jewish people. And he's saying, look, this is the Messiah. He's your king. We need he meets all the criteria. This is the guy. We need to bow to him. We need to lay our lives down before him. And Jesus begins to uh, he goes into that temptation. We we we. Looked into the, the temptation of Jesus in the desert last week, how he overcame the, how he overcame Satan in, in a very visible display of spiritual warfare. He overcame those temptations so that he could be activated and functioning in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what we get to do too. We have to overcome our temptations in order for God to trust us with the things of the Holy Spirit with the signs, wonders, miraculous signs, like he's got to be able to trust us. He can't give you more unless you're responsible with what you already have. And so God, he's pushing us and he's pushing us. He's pushing us to become better and better and better. Now in chapter 5 of Matthew is, what we, is the beginnings of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, it's almost a parallel. So Jesus is on a mountain and he, begin, he gives the most famous sermon that's ever been given. It's the longest discourse in, in the entire Gospels of Jesus' teaching. It is one big, giant, steady, conscious flow right from Jesus himself. It's the red-letter stuff. This is the stuff that we really need to pay attention to. And he gives his very first talk, his very first sermon, his teaching, on a mountain outside, not inside of a temple or a church. He's on a mountain. So it, it's, it's kind of a glorified mountain. It's a glorified hill. It's not really, it's not like, it's not like those guys out there. Uh, those are mountains, right? Those are amazing mountains. Do you guys realize how lucky we are to live here where we have those mountains like there and every once in a while God will spray, spray paint them white and it is so cool. I've lived in other places that don't have mountains. They have no sense of space. It's awful. Don't live there. Live here. It's much better. <laughs> Like, when I was in Seattle, I was like, oh my gosh, everything's green. Where are the mountains? Where am I getting? I, I, I don't know where I'm at. I'm lost. I have no, you know, I had to have, love the mountains. But the, Jesus' mountain, it wasn't like Moses' mountain. It wasn't like Horeb where he's up. Moses' mountain, something cool like that. But this one is a glorified hill. It's still gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's up, and you overlook a, a valley. I've been there. And if you want to go with me, we're going to go in September. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to go this time, I promise. Or you can go without me if you need to, but we're going. Uh, it, it overlooks a valley. It's absolutely a beautiful setting. I'm surprised somebody hasn't messed it up and put a chapel on it yet. But it's, it's gorgeous. But yeah, it's more like a hill. And it's not... Whenever you think of Israel, like in your mind's eye, when we talk about Israel, usually it looks like our nativity sets. You know, it's all rock and dirt and desert. 
and shrubs. That's not what the Sea of Galilee looks like. And that's not what the mountain looks like. This is up in the northern part, close to Syria. And it's, it's green and it's lush. And where Jesus was, um, he's up on this mountain and it, and it slopes down like this. And then there's a valley down here with the Sea of Galilee in the middle of it. And everything is green. And down the valley, it's all checkered like a, like a quilt because it's an agricultural area. And so that's the setting. Okay, so with that, so now you get some type of a, a mental idea of what it looked like. Uh, let's read the Beatitudes. Let's read the very beginning. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is in three parts. This is the first part. So chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 are all the Sermon on the Mount. This is called the Beatitudes. You've heard of this before. And what I want to encourage you right now, if you've been walking with the Lord, you've heard this, you've heard it read, you've probably heard it teach. Um, there, there's a problem when we know it. There's a, it becomes a problem when you get familiar with something, right? And we can't do this. Familiarity, it, it breeds contempt. It breeds apathy. Yeah, familiarity breeds, like, yeah, been there, done that. But this is Jesus' first sermon. These are the very first words out of his mouth as he began his ministry. They're very important. And we, this is, we need to meditate on what he said. We need to, we need to get it. The Beatitudes is Jesus' manifesto for us. Where the, the, you know, our, our turning our will and our ability to resist temptation will release us into the things of heaven. These are the attributes of somebody, of an individual, of a, of, a, of a servant, a subject that is functioning inside of the kingdom of heaven, that is actually doing this stuff. This is, this is Jesus' uh, attributes that we must get if we want to be entrusted with miraculous signs and wonders and divine appointments and the such. So let's just do this. Let's, um, let's just go there right now. Let's just go to the mound. So this won't be weird, I promise. Close your eyes. Just close your eyes, and I want you just to, in your mind's eye, en envision yourself getting the invite to hear Jesus. At this point, as far as we know, he hasn't really done many miracles. Turn water into wine, but that's pretty much about it. He hasn't been drawing crowds yet. But there's something about his teaching that is drawing everybody. The very words out of his mouth, there's something special, attractive about them. And you get the invite. You get the Facebook invite. And you click, I'm interested. And as you leave the valley... You begin just to, the, the slope is very gentle, by the way. You just go up this very gentle slope, but it goes up quite, quite high where you, where you can see down into the valley. And the Sea of Galilee looks like a gem, a blue marble that is inside of a green quilt. And you turn around, and you are around 
hundreds and thousands of people. It is the multitudes. But it's not like Disneyland. It's not like being in the grocery store. It's not like the rush of Christmas shopping. Like, there are a lot of people hungry to listen to this man. But the atmosphere, even though it's outside, the atmosphere around is peaceful and gentle. And there is no hurry in people's spirits. There is no, there's no anxiety. There's no shoving. There's no loud talking. There's just like a hush that's over the whole crowd because they're just anticipating what he's going to say. You take one final look at the Sea of Galilee, and then you turn around and you see Jesus up on top of this hill. It's all covered in long green grass. It's springtime, and you can smell the fresh grass. There's a bit of a breeze, and occasionally the basin of the valley gets churned up and a breeze blows up from the top of the mountain and you can smell the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, and rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is what Jesus just said to you right now. So let's look at it. You can open your eyes. If you want to take notes, there's nine of these blessings. Let's see how well I do. I might not get to all of them today. But there's nine blessings. And something I want you to know about the word blessing. Like, it's a loaded word. Like, blessing doesn't describe what Jesus is saying. We don't have the language to understand it. Our language, the English language, doesn't quite understand what this word blessed is. And the, to the best of our abilities in translating this word blessed, it comes across as happy. Happy. But it's even deeper than happy because, you know, I'm happy to get a donut. Right? <laughs> So it's, it, run, it runs a lot deeper than just being happy for something or someone. Now, this is like a 
This happiness is a, is a, is a joy. It's almost like as if it's an accessed favor. It is, it's, a div, it's a divine peace that literally makes you happy. The strange thing about the Beatitudes is almost as if they're, they contradict each other. Let's look at it real quick. So blessed, happy, joyful, favored, blown away is the individual who is poor, right? Happy is the one that's poor. Doesn't make sense, does it? It's a little upside down. In your bulletin, we see the cover of Matthew, and it's an upside-down world. And this is what Jesus begins to do. Everything that Jesus teaches, everything that he even does, it is, it is revolutionary. It is completely countercultural to the ancient world. And here's, guess what? It's countercultural to our culture, too. Like, what, Jesus is going to rub you the wrong way. It, he, it's not going to feel good to our American culture, what he's going to begin to teach us. But there is something so fascinating about the very words that are coming out of his mouth. Again, his word, his, his freshly spoken word is just as attractive as his miracles to the, to the masses. Like they're hanging on every word. And he says, blessed is the poor. In what? Poor in spirit. See, there's the, there's the nuance. There's the important part that we got to get. Blessed is the happy, joyful like blown away is the one who is poor in spirit. Um, here's the thing. Blessed, why can't I be rich in spirit? You don't want to be rich in spirit. You want to be poor in spirit. You notice that it doesn't say blessed are the poor. If you've been around, you know that there's nothing happy about being poor. Being poor is not being blessed. Jesus does not rule his kingdom by subjecting his people to poverty. That's what the enemy of God does. The devil rules his kingdom by keeping, his, by keeping us in poverty. Financial poverty. So that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, if you want to be blessed, if you truly want to find happiness here on earth, just like our Constitution says, if you want that pursuit of true happiness, you have to be poor of spirit. That means that you need to come to the realization that you don't have what it takes and that you need to be completely vulnerable and open and broken before the Lord and the Spirit. Your spirit, which is poor, needs, once it begins to mingle and connect with the Holy Spirit, there is a revelation that says, I am not in control, am I, Lord? And what, if, I don't know why I'm bringing this up all the time. It's probably my issue. But those that are control freaks, they have the hardest part with this issue. Those that have this, this, this desire to control their situations and to control their circumstances and heaven forbid even control other people, they have the hardest part with this because when, when Jesus is saying, you, you, can't, you can't do that anymore, you need to become poor of spirit in order to truly be happy because the, the, the path that you're taking of control is, will, will not bring you happiness. That mentality of Wanting more, of getting more, it's, it's actually 
poverty spirit. You have to become poor in spirit and recognize that you need God. Like some of the stuff that Jesus is saying here, like it can't be taught. Like the Ten Commandments, those are no brainers, right? They're pretty straightforward. They can be taught, we can follow them, and we can become good little people. But how do you teach somebody that in order to truly find happiness, you need to become poor of spirit? I can't teach it. can't be taught. It has to be caught. There, there's, there's some deep element that we don't necessarily get here. We do know that he's not saying, okay, let's be poor. Uh, let's bring up uh, Proverbs 38 real quick, because I, I, I think this might help us understand what Jesus is trying to highlight here. It says, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Next line. Maybe not. All right. There it is. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I am not or that I am not in want and steal and profane the name of God. So this is what the uh, this is the idea is is that and this is where Jesus gets it probably. Give me today my daily bread. You know, Lord, all I really need is for you to provide my needs for me. I remember when I was a, when I was a boy and when I really first fell in love with Jesus, like, <laughs> I don't know. It was just like the words that, that captivated my heart. It was just the atmosphere that was in the room. And I was like, I had, this is the best thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I remember, even before I read this scripture, I remember thinking to myself, oh, God, please, you know, if I get rich someday and that takes me away from you, please don't make me rich. If I get famous someday and that takes me away from your presence, please don't allow me to become famous. And likewise, Lord, if I fall into utter poverty, please don't let me do that where I can't take it to the point where I curse your name. This is what he's saying. Some of the hardest people to lead to the Lord are the rich. Jesus says it himself. It's harder for a rich man to enter. It's, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, for a boo to go through the eye of the needle, than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And likewise, it's difficult to minister to poor people because they're so broken and disenfranchised and hurt, and they develop an attitude towards God. Number two, all of these Beatitudes, they, they interlock very well together. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will become comforted. This is a little bit more than, you know what, happy and joyful are you that mourn when you go to a funeral, right? Or when something bad happens, you mourn. I don't, this is not what Jesus is talking about. And this is directly connected to your 
poverty spirit. Poor in spirit, I should say. This is directly to your, your, your need to be poor in spirit, is that you need to, to mourn. All those that mourn will be comforted. One of the things that, that we see that I've experienced in my own personal spiritual walk, I, you, you have to mourn your old life. Like, if you cannot see that you are, that you, that you are poor in spirit, like the moment that you realize that you are in utter need for God, that you are, that you are in desperate need for God, that you can do nothing within your own power, that everything else is a sham unless God is involved in it. Once you come to that realization, when you're like, oh my gosh, I, my heart is desperately wicked and I need God inside of it. Once you get to that point, you, like, like there is a breaking where you, where you mourn for yourself. You, honestly, you truly can't mourn for the others. You, your heart can't break for others until it is broken for, for yourself first. When you see that oh, God loves me so much and you, you mourn, like Jesus is, Jesus is out to kill you in a good way. He's, he's out to get your old self and to put that old self in the grave and to, to baptize you in water and fire and spirit, baptize you and leave that old dead person in the water and you come out new. And we need to mourn our own life, the, the old way of thinking, the old lifestyle. And when you finally get it, it like, like mourning your, your, yourself and what Jesus has done for you, the, the very fact that he saved you from your wretchedness, that, that mourning, it's extremely painful. It's as, as if you're ripping off old scales and old scabs and you're becoming fresh and becoming new. But you have to, you must, you must go through that process. Next one, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. This one's, we don't have a proper understanding of this word either. What it doesn't say is happy are or blessed are the sissies. Blessed are the wimps. Blessed are the doormats. The spineless. The cowards. It doesn't say that at all. So blessed are the meek. What does it mean to truly be meek? The way that we highlight it around here is that meekness what we call power under control. Power under control. So blessed are those that recognize their power and they choose to submit that power to the will of God. One of the things that everybody has, maybe you don't feel empowered right now, maybe you feel like a victim, but I guarantee everybody in the room has cer a certain degree of power. If you've ever had a two-year-old that is weak, that has no muscles, no brain power, uh, when you're in the department store, you realize when they begin to exercise their power in a public space that they are wielding power over you. So meekness is power under control. And God, again, in his wisdom and in his guidance, he gives us all a, a degree of power that we are responsible for controlling. 
that the ones that have the power under the control, they will inherit the earth. This is the very temptation that the devil tempted Jesus with. So what does that, how does that, really, what does that really look like in our, in our everyday walk? Power under control. If these are attributes and attitudes to accessing the kingdom of heaven, what is a, well, I'll work on women in a second. But what does a meek man look like? What does a truly meek man look like? I'll tell you. I'm going to give you another really good visual. He looks like Charleston Heston. You like that one? The, the Bible says that the meekest man that ever walked the planet was Moses. And Moses, in my mind, Moses and Charleston Heston are the same person. Is that okay? Are we okay with that? You know, Charleston Heston said, you know, you can't take my gun away from me. You have to pry it out of my cold, dead hands. Well, Moses has the same attitude. He'd be like, you can't take my staff away from me. You can pry it out of my cold, dead hands. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Moses was the meekest man that ever walked the planet. And yet, he walks right in to the most powerful country the world has ever seen, faces the most powerful man that the world has ever seen. Probably, honestly, Satan himself was possessed Pharaoh. That's what I think. And he says, let my people go. Do weak men do that? Do sissies do that? Do cowards do that? No, meek men do that. He was functioning under power that was under control. Moses, the, the same guy that braves the very presence of God. Completely fascinated by this, by the way. Like Moses was so captivated by God's presence that he, he we've we got the presence of God here right now. It's amazing. It can, I think it'll always be better. But what Moses was experiencing was something that, that we, haven't, we haven't even gotten close to touching yet. Moses walked into a very, the Bible describes it as dark, a very dense, dark presence of God that would kill most people. And he took the risk to do it. Biblically meek people take huge risks to get into God's presence. Moses, this meek man, said, God, I want to see your face. God said, that's probably not a very good idea. Moses, I don't care. It's like God's like, okay, okay I'll, I'll show you my backside. And yet, again, I don't quite have it all figured out. The Bible says that Moses and God talked together face to face as a, as a man would talk to his friend. Moses, the guy that, that goes up not on a little glorified hill to get the word of God, he goes up to one of those big, giant, cool mountains for a very long time and receives the Ten Commandments by the very finger of God himself. Do, do cowards do that kind of stuff? No. He had, the, he had his power under control, except when he got down to the hill and he saw all the Israelites having this big, wild, you know, spring break Florida party going on. <laughs> and then he completely loses it, right? So that, there, there we see him not being so meek, because he had to go back up the hill and get another set, because he broke the, the, the first set. Think of it this way. 
you can't function in the kingdom of heaven. God's not going to give you access to all the cool toys in, until you're meek or until you're able to exercise some degree of humility in your life. I think what, what it really boils down to is you have to become this, this humble servant, the, the servant that doesn't have an agenda, the servant that doesn't, that's not on a, what's in it for me, that's on the power trip, what do I get out of the situation? I think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm really excited about where our leadership is right now inside of our church. Our board meeting on Friday night, like I couldn't sense any power trips in the room. A board meeting. That was so refreshing. You go to a school board meeting, it's all, has anybody ever been to a school board meeting? Uh Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about. It was a great one. But because our leaders are meek and humble, and they they, they have this realization that I'm subject to the king. Americans are subject to the king. What? It's such a fascinating idea, isn't it? All right. Next one. I'm not going to be able to do them all today, so we'll finish it later. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Inside the kingdom of heaven, you get to eat a lot and drink a lot. And your cup is always overflowing. At Christmas time, uh, maybe you ate a lot. How many people ate a lot at Christmas time? How many people drank? Maybe don't raise your hand on this one. Maybe drank a lot. <laughs> don't raise your hand on this one either. Uh, I didn't do this this year, but I will admit that I've done it in past years. Where I've eaten so much that I can't eat anymore. Yeah. I remember as a kid during, you know, on more than one occasion as a kid, uh, trick-or-treating. Like, I ate so much candy one time, I barfed all over the place, right? You ever done that? That's the natural world. Now we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of this world, you eat a bunch of junk food, you overeat, you're going to get sick, it's awful. And you say, oh, I'm never going to do this again. You drink too much, you're like, oh, God, just take this horrible feeling away from me, and I'll never do it again, right? Inside the kingdom of heaven, your cup is always full, and you can never get enough. It is these streams of living water that keep on bubbling up with inside of you, and you drink, and you drink, and you drink your fill, and yet you're still hungry, and hungry, and hungry, and thirsty for more. More and more righteousness. It is addicting once you get a taste, and you see that the Lord is good. You taste that nectar, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Can I get some more? And Jesus is like, yeah, you can. And it keeps coming and coming and coming, and it never makes you sick. Happy, joyful, full of favor are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. For you're going to be fulfilled. There's so many people in this world that don't feel fulfilled. You ever feel like that? I just don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel completed. You know, I haven't had the Jerry Maguire movie moment 
You know, where the hot girl says, no, Jerry says, you complete me, right? Our biggest lie ever, by the way. No individual can complete you. Only Jesus can complete you when you begin to start eating and drinking and seeing that his righteousness is good. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy as a kingdom citizen, as a subject to the king. Um, He's showing us mercy. One of the very frustrating things about the Bible is uh, it also says, uh, you want to, I need more mercy in my life. Like, I need God to show me more mercy, more grace, more favor, more forgiveness. Jesus says, you haven't received the grace, the favor, the mercy that you want so much because you haven't shown favor, grace, mercy to those that you have animosity toward. There's entire people groups that haven't experienced the grace of God because we harbor too much anger and bitterness towards them. We haven't forgiven them yet. We haven't shown mercy. What would happen if the people that we don't like, we showed them mercy? The very same mercy that Jesus showed us. And we will receive more of God's mercy and more of God's favor. And we will step into deeper levels of happiness. I like this one a lot. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they're going to be like Moses and see God. Purity. Pure in heart. What, what in the world does that mean? We sang about it. Purify my heart. It is the refiner's fire. These are the things that, that we learned that we need to begin to think about, obsess about, get our minds around. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, you just start obsessing about those things. What is the motivation for thinking good thoughts and for being pure? Holding, holding a standard of purity in your life, requiring your children to take stances of purity. What is the result of that? What is the outcome of that? It's a really cool one. It's I see God. I want to see God. And in order for me to see more of God, I got to get some more purity going on in my life. I got to quit thinking about the garbage and start thinking about things that are good. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will become they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Like, this is identity stuff. To build bridges, to... The kingdom lifestyle is not built on an attraction to conflict. Christianity is not a... Like, we're to stand up for righteousness and truth, but... We should not be thriving on conflict. We should be thriving on peace. Uh, if you go into a Facebook argument, which I don't recommend at all, by the way, but if you go into a Facebook argument with the mentality and heart for conflict and not peace, uh, you're, you, you, what does the Bible say? You, you take away your identity. 
Your identity is a son and daughter of God. Um, peacemaker. So let's not let the enemy of God strip our identity away when we think that we have the God-given right to be ugly, nasty, mean Christians. That, that's not it. It doesn't say, blessed are the nasty, mean Christians. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. It's a skill, by the way. All right, I need to wrap it up. We'll talk about the persecution next week. Let me get the, the band and the ushers to come up to the front. Again, this is Jesus' manifesto. There's nine of them. The last two deal with persecution. And it's not the, frankly, this one really doesn't apply to us that much. Because we're not persecuted. We're just not. I mean, you might have some microaggressions online. They don't count. It's, they, don't, they don't count in this church. Somebody might make fun of you at work or at school. That doesn't count. We have brothers and sisters that are literally losing their lives in other countries for the sake of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They're so enthralled. They're so encaptured. They want all these things that we just read about. And they're willing to literally live their life and give their life and die for the gospel message of Jesus. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I, and I do think that you are there too. I think if push came to shove, if we were no longer in a free country, if we were in a, you know, if they said, oh, you can't do this anymore, you can't worship, you can't go after the things of the Spirit anymore, I think all of us would stand up and make a stand for Christ. I think that we would. God is good. It is His ultimate desire and will for your life to be blessed to be happy, to prosper, and to step into favor. That is God's desire for your life. This is, that's Jesus' very first sermon to you. Be blessed. Be blessed. Be blessed. Be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your word, the, the power of your teaching that made entire group, the multitude, just hang on your every word. God, I pray, Jesus, that you just continue just to speak into our hearts where your word is just as attractive to us and what you've, the character that you've called us into is just as attractive to us as all of your, all the fun stuff, the signs and wonders and miracles. God, I pray right now that you'll just turn our hearts towards love today. That we will become peacemakers. That we will strive to be merciful. That we will see your heart and become meek. God, I pray right now that we'll be keenly aware that we are poor in spirit and that we need you. Give us the ability to mourn well, Lord breathe new life into us all. In your name, amen.